This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone. Welcome to Asia Torah, the Essentials Program. We are all in the seminar of life. You know, when you put yourself into a seminar and you pay your money and you show up, they put you, they generally are set up to put you through a certain kind of hell that's going to test you and get you to where, get you to a certain place in life. And, uh, you know, you're going to get pushed, and you're going to have to get through things and get to the other side of those things and, and declare victory at the end of your experience. And that's, that's the way they're designed. But life is a seminar. We're all in that seminar right now. We're all getting pushed and prodded and bumped and bruised through all kinds of things. Uh, there's good things going on, and there's more challenging things going on. We're all going through lots of different stuff. And... It's a nice spot here if you want to be closer. Um, two spots, actually. And three spots. How do you, what's the answer to getting the best results? Let's say you do lay your money on the line and your time and you go do some seminar somewhere. What's the key to getting the most out of it? What's the key? Give everyone a chance. Why? Okay, what's the, what's the positive way of saying not being resistant? Open. What was the word I used? Yeah, the, the, no one could say it. I just said the word surrender a couple times. And uh, you see that people people are even resistant to the word surrender because because we've been, we've been doing everything but surrendering. Uh, you want to make more room, ladies, you're, uh, just to make it easier for other women to come sit. You can just put in the aisle, it's fine. Also, any commitment, no? Commitment's important in seminars because one, one of the ways that people deal with seminars is running away from them. <laughs> so, so, obviously, <laughs> commitment's really important for seminars. Um, but you know what? Maybe you're saying something very deep that I wouldn't have thought of. Was um, how about life? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that in a minute. In a minute. Remind me in like two minutes. We're talking about a surrender. If you want to get anywhere in life, you got to surrender to what's going on with you. When we resist, what's happening in our life? When we resist all the stuff that God's sending us, because we may not have prophecy today, but prophecy's been relegated to your life circumstances, relationships, situations, your finances, your health, like that's been, that is ultimately how God speaks to you. God is speaking to all of us through our circumstances. Now, for those of you who feel God's not very strongly speaking to you in your circumstances, you're, you, you know, it's time to wake up. Hey, you doing table for two over here? You just come right around. Right. God is speaking to you through the circumstances of your life. Now, how, for those who wonder, is God really speaking to me through my life circumstances? <laughs> if you just ask yourself that question, let's all ask ourselves that question together. Ready? Everyone say this question. I'll say it first. Is God really speaking to me through my life circumstances? Everyone ask that. Ready? Is God really speaking to me through my life circumstances? Ask it again. It's a funny question because you immediately realize, yes. Okay, do it again. Is God really speaking to me through my life circumstances? 
One more time. Ask the question and listen for the answer. Is God, Is God really speaking to me through my life? Through my life circumstances. And what is the answer to even the most dis- biggest disbeliever? Yeah. The answer is yes. Even a disbeliever. Now, obviously, if you don't believe in God, so God's not speaking to you, in your opinion. But anything despite atheists, God's, God's sending you message after message after message after message after message. And I'll prove it to you in one way, and then I'll take your question because I want to hear it. I'll prove it to you in one way, and that is how you may have been noticing the constant... Shalom, welcome. I never know when people come this late to my class if I'm if it's because of me coming late in the past. Yeah. And, well, not necessarily. That was kind of my question. Yeah. I can relate to that. I've noticed my class kind of fills over the first half hour. So I wonder if people are just like wondering when I might have shown up. So you, you did that too. Yeah? Yes, yeah, we oh. heard that. We heard that you're never on time. Never on time, that's not true. Oh, to this class. This class I'm rarely on time. Although I'm, uh, since yesterday and today I'm doing well. Yeah. I've got the last two days nailed. Yeah. I was going to remind you about commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you missed them. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying, is everything's orchestrated, so you got here exactly at the right time. I understand. I believe this so f- strongly that perhaps that's why I'm late. Like, I'm using it to the point of irresponsibility. I mean, I'm, I've become irresponsible because wherever I am is exactly where I'm meant to be. And meanwhile, I'm like, no, actually, Rabbi Glazer, you were supposed to be here at 210. You know? Thank you. But meanwhile, wherever I am, I'm always like, like seeing how it's all like unfolding, you know, amazing how it's unfolding. Anyway, so what I was saying was, we all have to recognize how orchestrated our lives are. Meaning, I'm just saying how orchestrated life is. It's incredibly orchestrated. For example, I was just visiting someone and uh, just now fell 20 stories. Um, do you guys know how tall 20 stories is? 20, 20 stories. stories is like the tallest buildings in Jerusalem that. We have two buildings about that tall, the Crown Plaza and the uh, and then the Migdalayir, right? Ben Yehuda, King George. 20 stories, that's uh, 200 feet. It's really, really, really fall to far. You don't, most people don't live to ever talk about such things. He flew in a blizzard on a French ski mountain. Uh, he hit ice, started sliding, moving at fast pace because he's a knucklehead, skiing by himself in a blizzard almost no one on the mountain, and flew backwards off a 200-foot cliff. Um, he did hit something on the way down. He felt this poof, and then he f- was airborne again, and then he hit the tops of the trees in the forest, and then boom, onto the ground. Broke his fall twice. and uh, But in a blizzard that was you know, going on for the rest of the day into the night. And he stood up and walked away? He was not standing up to walk away, no. Um, what happened was there were two ice climbers on the cliff. He f- flew over their heads. Oh, wow. And that's why he's alive. Oh, wow. But all he's got is a couple bruises. You know, now he's got a big metal plate in his arm. The blizzard, they couldn't even get the helicopter in to him. But, but there was like a one-hour break in the blizzard. That uh, that was just enough to get the doctor down there to pump him with some drugs and then 
put his shoulder back in its socket and with using the broken forearm, it was broken in three places to put it in. And uh, anyway, but orchestrated. For, let me give you all a personal example for your own, per, meaning not my personal, your personal example. How are you in Israel right now? What are you doing here? You, you, most of you, if you understand my English, are from thousands of miles away. How did you get here? And did you choose to come here? And the answer is, I imagine you all chose to come here. But now start thinking, just take a moment and think of who had to know who, who had to speak to who, how did you have, who, how did you get here? And if you live here now, how did you get here the first time? Who orchestrated this whole thing? You'll notice that you were very much not involved in any of those circumstances. All that was handed to you in the very last moment was a microphone. And some announcer in heaven said, will you go? And you were like, yes. And then, which was like, duh. You know, like the whole thing was orchestrated. And, and then you go like this, you're like, nothing like the power of free will. <laughs> and meanwhile, the orchestrator's laughing because it was all orchestrated. Now, it's not that you don't have free will. You did choose. But the but circumstances, and this is what marketing is all about, like the trillions of dollars of marketing, is to, can we, pre, can we cre create predictable, can we create circumstances that create, a, that elicit a predictable reaction to people? And that's a separate subject. Our subject is orchestration. And commitment. I see myself being orchestrated for other people all the time. I go to a store that was closed, and all I had to do was just Google it. I would have seen it was closed, but no, I got to be a dummy and waste my time and see for myself. I get to the door; it's closed. I turn around, and someone's like, "I'm desperately searching for you. I have to ask you the following question." Yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, happy to be orchestrated for you. We're being orchestrated. It's the craziest thing. Everyone's being orchestrated for you, but yet you're being orchestrated for everyone else. And meanwhile, you have free will." which is the wildest. Like, how do you have free will, yet all the people being orchestrated around you are... And also, every one of us in this room and now watching this live have had stories in our lives, I always forget mine, which is a shame, I should really keep a log, of incredible, amazing idiosyncrasies, of situations, innuendos, that are predictably impossible, yet every single puzzle piece came together, <laughs> variables of which are were literally impossible, mathematically impossible, yet there, the variables did come together and produce. It's almost like there's a conspiracy going on on the other side of, of physicality, which in this classroom we like to call this world the outer crust. But it's almost like there's some kind of, cons we're on the outer crust, there's some kind of conspiracy going on inside it that's, that's working things directly in our favor. Now, in our favor, sometimes hurts like hell. Like, for example, the doctor said to the guy with the, when his shoulder was out, and he was going to use his forearm broken, I mean, complete breaks in three spots. He said, I'm going to use your forearm to put, I have to use your forearm to get your shoulder back in. He says, it's going to be the most pain you've ever had in your life. And this guy's like the king of pain. I mean, this guy's been through hell. And he said he passed out from the pain. He, he went unconscious while he was putting the shoulder back in. Yo, what's up? Come on, guys. A couple seats here if you want to sit together. And just slide that chair closer a little so you're not behind me. How you doing? Welcome. Welcome. 
ice climbers, for pain. The, 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 the movie you're in, this, this amazing THX, THX surround sound Omnimax 3D LSD experience called Your Life is, it hurts a lot of the time. A lot of time. I've been through hell. These eyes have cried tears where I don't know where they came from. I don't know where my manufacturing plant of tears is from because you ever thought about your eyes? Your eyes, when you, every time you blink, what are you really doing? You're relubricating your eyes. When you blink, it draws a little more of this microscopic saline solution inside your head. I don't know where it is. That somehow produces salt water, which is very convenient for us. The reason it's salt water is that it doesn't rot at 98 degrees. You have some kind of water inside your head, near your eyes, that's stored there for keeping your eyes lubricated. And it would rot at 98 degrees, unless, of course, it has the perfect amount of saline in it. That enough is to know there's a God. But it gets better. Every animal with eyes has some kind of lubricant going on, and I'm sure it's made of saline as well. I don't know if they have the same amount of, you know, same ratio of liquid to salt. I don't know. But somehow our eyes can produce, I don't know how many times, a million times, a thousand times, 10,000 times more liquid when we need to relieve ourselves of heavy pain. If we have heavy pain in our hearts, we have an ability to release heavy pain. Heavy pain. So that we can go on in life clean and clear and happy and well. Human beings are meant to be happy. We're the only beings in the entire creation that are set up to be happy. I mean, eucalyptus trees, you know, they're, they're, they sound nice in the wind, and they're pretty, and they smell nice, but they're not happy. Okay? Cheetahs, monkeys, koala bears, they're, they're, they have cool lives, for sure, unless they're, of course, getting eaten. And, but they have cool lives, but they are not happy. Eagles are not happy creatures. Happy is a reflection of one's situation. Happy is a reflection of one's life. Happy is something that requires a cognitive, ref reflexive ability to experience as an individual with this cognition, with what we call consciousness. You have to have a conscious appreciation. It's not enough to be fused. Experience is amazing, for sure. Like it. You know, people love experience. That's why people go to like rock concerts or roller coaster rides or hang gliding and stuff. People like experience. Because you're, in a way, you are that eagle right there. When your mind shuts down and you're cruising down that roller coaster or you're at that concert and the music's blasting and you're just in the rhythm, you're, you're the eagle. There's something to be said for it, but it's not happy. It's a deep pleasure to have your mind shut down and for you to be totally fused with that which is happening around you, there is a deep pleasure in that, but it's not called happiness. Happiness is reflexive. We are the only beings and we're that have it, and we're the only beings created to have it, and anything less than happy, anything less than happy, is a non-negotiable. Meaning from now on, you, have zero tolerance for anything less than happy. Zero tolerance. And if you have not done everything to be vigilant for your happiness, 
but everything. Chutz me, did I just switch to Hebrew? Besides something forbidden, and even then you could probably ask the right giant rabbi, you'd need a giant rabbi to ask him. You know, for example, uh, I don't know, like, she's, got, she's suffering terrible depression because she misses lobster. But now she's totally disturbed, but like beyond disturbed. She's lost her, she's not, she's not even alive, she's got a pulse. So it could be that if you go to Rav, uh, you know, Chaim uh, Kanievsky, he might say, break out the lobster, I don't know. I don't know what he'd say, I know a pregnant woman you can break out the lobster. If lobster is what she craves, head down to head down to Mexico and get your fresh lobster. You know, you're giving her lobster. Now, obviously, you, I, I personally, if my wife asked for lobster, I would I would spend at least a few minutes trying to convince her otherwise. You know, but uh, but the Talmud says, pregnant woman craves something, get it going, even on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, yeah, get out the A1 sauce. Now, the so what I've done right now is I've tried to create a conflict. First of all, I said everything's orchestrated. Secondly, I said that we're all in some seminar that we're supposed to surrender to and stop resisting it. Because if you're in resistance, you're never going to get out of it. You'll stay there forever. I mean, how long is this? As long as I keep doing this to this pen, how long is that pen staying there? Yeah, forever <laughs> till I stop. You couldn't get this pen out of my hand. If you, if, I mean, maybe with a gun, but uh, or a knife. <laughs> but this pen is staying. And how many people do we know in our lives, including ourselves, that are in some kind of resistance to their life and the circumstances around them? Meaning, we are in a seminar. You're in a free seminar. Most people spend a lot of money on seminars. You're in a free seminar. And, you know, if you paid the money, if you paid money and went to a seminar with all your time and, you know, spent a grand or something, would you spend a lot of time in resistance there or would you surrender to the, to the leader? Surrender. You'd surrender there. I'm not waste my time and money. Yet we're all in a seminar. It's free. We're all getting pushed and prodded. And yet all of us are in resistance to our current situation as opposed to letting it actually give us that massage. You know, when my wife and I have been put in difficult situations over our lives, we've called it, we've called it emotional yoga. Meaning when people are doing yoga, you know, and they have to like get in this crazy pretzel position, you know, they're like, you know, like for example, a tree where you're like, you know, you're like this. I mean, that's not comfortable. To me, it's comfortable, but no one else is going to be comfortable doing this. And so sometimes life puts you into those positions. And so, what does the teacher tell you? If you're doing yoga and you're in some difficult position, what does the teacher tell you? Breathe. And you're like, breathe. <laughs> I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> she tells you to breathe. And you're like, breathe. And then, of course, when people are in those positions, they're like, they're like this. And the yoga teacher, you know what she always says, or he says? He says, our, our yoga... The, our kind of rabbi yoga teacher around here, you know, because we also, it's yoga slash Masila Shasharim. We do yoga and then we learn Masila Shasharim, the path of the just. Yeah, which by the way, since I'm on the subject, Jews only go to kosher yoga teachers. I mean, if your yoga teacher is not observant, Torah observant, so then, 
so then you need your rabbi involved for sure. Meaning if there's no other alternative than a kosher yoga teacher. Because for Judaism, for Jews, our tribal tradition is has to remain very pure if you're going to benefit from it. You can't really get the benefit of Judaism if you're mixing traditions. You got it. It's a very pure tradition, extremely pure tradition, and you can't mix it. And I understand someone who's conform conformism. <laughs> conform. <laughs> conform is conservative reform. Conform. Conformitism. What is the other one called? Revolutionary. Reconstructionist. Reconstructionist. Reconstruct. Conformitist. So if you're conformatist, so then, is that word conformatist? No, no. conformist. Yes. Conformist. If you're conformist, I understand that you're going to want something spiritual, so you have no choice but to slice and dice and cut and paste. You know, you definitely need a little yoga in your synagogue. But, in, but if you are holding fast to tribal Judaism, like the actual, the real stuff, you know, the tribal tradition of our people, then the opposite, like if you start augmenting with other traditions, you actually will taint the experience. It will become tainted. And you will lose, you will lose, you will not gain from that. And and it's it's really important that those of us who are practitioners of Jewish tradition that we are super clean in our in that process. Super clean. And um, what you can do, though, is completely ignore, you can, you're allowed to ignore the community's um, uh, bad habits. Meaning, if you're part of a community that just has bad habits, which can be bad sleeping habits, bad eating habits, uh, uh, not meditating at all when they pray. You know, meaning they're just, they're taking chakras from the future and getting it to the past so they can get it to work. You know, meaning chakras is something you move. You eat, you... You uproot it from your future, you put it in your past, and you, go, you have to go through something for about a half hour to get that done. But, but if you're part of a community that's not, that's not expressive spiritually when they're involved in Jewish practice, for sure you can ignore that. That you just ignore. And you, and you take on meditative practice. Now... Meditative practice in Judaism is going to be hard to learn. Who do you go to? I mean, you know, you have someone you could go to for meditative practice in Judaism? <laughs> yeah. Well, Daniel Katz. Excellent. Excellent. Daniel Katz is amazing. We were on the phone for about a half hour, uh, about an hour ago. One of my dear colleagues. So there are people to go to, for sure. But there, there should be more. And there may not be in every local Orthodox community. So you may have to learn some practice, but there's learning practice, and then there's content. Content for the practicing Jew is forbidden to get content from someone else. Methodology could be perfectly fine. If you need to learn a methodology, you understand what I'm saying? To get a methodology in meditation, for example, breathing techniques. Getting the breathing techniques. That's methodology. Content? No deal. So that's why I'm saying in yoga, there can be a lot of content that, that if you don't have a kosher yoga teacher, so then you're getting content that is going to not help. It'll hinder your, your spiritual, <coughs> spiritual path. Um, so I apologize, those who live in places that don't have this, but anyone living in the tri-state area or Israel, Israel's like a, amazing amounts of, of kosher yoga teachers and 
and um, even Brooklyn has, there's someone do, with a yoga studio in Crown Heights, and so that's certainly available for people. What do you think the yoga teacher says when your face is squinched up because you're in a difficult position? What do they say? They say, you're not going to need your face for this. <laughs> There's only one yoga position that's for your face. I'm not going to do it for you right now, but it's, it's called the lion's pose. You ever done a lion's pose? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it is kind of freeing. You know, there's a rabbi here, Dub Bear Cohen, who spent a lot of time in the Orient. Has he, is he who taught you the lion's pose? No. You've learned no. lion's pose. Anyway, he sometimes gets whole groups of like birthright kids to all do lion's pose together. You have to roar. And... It's a whole, whole facial awakening experience. But it's about the only yoga pose that requires facial muscles. In life, when we're resisting life, when we're resisting the seminar called Our Life, we don't grow. We're using muscles we don't need. There's energy being wasted. We're also, um, when we're resisting life, and then you're forced to go into something, I don't know what it may be, it might be a social circumstance, it might be you have to an interview or something professionally you have to go do. And if you're living in resistance, so then where do you draw your energy from? If you're spending all that energy on resisting your life, and now, but you gotta do stuff, we all gotta do stuff, we have responsibilities, we got work, we got, we got, you know, we gotta make money, we gotta be in res, rela, relationships, we have to show up at weddings, we got, we got stuff that requires effort. Where do you draw the effort from if you've spent all your energy in resistance? And therefore, surrender. Surrender and allow life to, to take you on this amazing journey of growth. It's cheap. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you're not paying anybody. The only one you have to trust is the leader of the seminar. Who's the leader of the seminar? It's God. So you can certainly trust God, etc. Okay, now you're on. No, no, don't, don't. Not the really good ones. <laughs> Not the heavy ones. The heavy ones are all, their job is just to get you to your inner core stuff. And you just know you're going somewhere and it's scary as hell. You're right, there are plenty of seminars that are teaching skill sets, life tools and stuff. But the, and they're also good. Did I say not the good ones? What I meant was the, I like the intense stuff. So like, I like intense. And the intense ones, you have no idea where you're going. Oh my gosh, the fear, the butterflies in the stomach when you're going in there on the first day. You know, you, it's amazing you can even like go to the bathroom. You're, you're so nervous. And because you know you're going somewhere that normally you'd never get there. But they're going to get you there. You know, the, the seminar's developed for that. Someone else had a question in the back? Yeah, how do you know that you surrender? Or how do, how do you surrender? Like, how do I know that uh, you breathe easy, facial muscles relaxed, um, you know, muscles, you, you like, for example, you can tell someone not surrender, their shoulders are a little high, as opposed to relaxed. So your body would be telling you that you're in a surrendered space. Digestion, digestion is good. Um, also, um, in Judaism, we always have a rabbi who we're working with, so he's, 
they're they're good at, if you give them enough info they're good at reading the paper like they can read the news if you give so you just give them enough to go on and they'll kind of give you an idea of where you're resisting where you're not you know uh, yeah yeah you want helping her or you have another question let me just finish that and um, um, the other thing is that you're never refuse everything's yes yes we all live in a yes world I'm talking about people who are happy people. We're all in a yes world. The answer is yes. Whatever's going on, the answer is yes. So if someone comes up to me and says, do I want to do X, Y, or Z? And I'm not sure I want to go and do that. So the answer is yes. And yes, but. <laughs> there'll, be a, yeah, there'll be a but there. I'll be yes, but let me check it out a little bit. But the answer is yes. Yes, I do want to do that. And I don't know where that will take me. And I'd like to check it out a little more, but the answer is basically yes. So you know you're out of resistance when you're just saying yes to everything. You're just saying yes. The answer is yes. As long as it's not obviously on the forbidden list of, as a Jew. The answer is yes. So I just had a guy pushed into university by his parents. And it was that or world tour. Now, what do you think I said? Oh, I asked him, so what are you going to study in university? He's like, I have no idea. I have no interest in it. I don't know what I want yet. And I said, you're going to waste a year in university? Hey, what's up? Moshe, welcome. You can sit anywhere. I said, you're going to waste a year in university, a place trained to, for like training you for the rest of your life, and you don't know what you want yet? You've got to know what you want when you go to university. And he said, he said, he just didn't really have the courage to tell his parents that he's going on a world tour instead of his freshman year of university. So a year later, he gets in touch with me. I can't show you what I sent him, but I sent him the following. Let me see if I can remember. How does it feel to have spent a year not following your dreams? That was my reply to him. And, and, he's, and so he finally called me last night, and he said, he said I'm, I'm, I'm leaving on my world tour. Like, he finished, he's finishing a semester now, and then that's it. He's like, he learned his lesson. He's learning his lesson. Anyway, so the answer is yes. He should have gone. Now, there's no should-haves. I'm sure he gained, and whoever he met, it was all orchestrated, because everything's orchestrated, and it's beyond our... We'll never understand why his bad choice of not following his dream is actually a good choice, because God knew somehow he was going to wind up in university, and therefore he had to meet someone. Ultimately, to come to this regret that sends him off on this world tour, which he's starting in September. He called me to ask where to go. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Jerusalem. Just kidding. He, he was calling from England. I, I'm not sending him to Jerusalem. Um, Is he Jew? He's Jew, yeah, yeah. He, did, he was here. He, he needs to, like, this kid needs to find himself. Head out into the wild blue yonder. <coughs> find himself, discover what he wants. By the way, that's not always my advice for people. Right. Just, this, this is just this particular young man. You have to travel the world. This particular young man uh, needs to... Yeah, there, there's something very special for young people that travel. Um, it, first of all, it gives them tremendous um, perspective on where they were raised. When you're raised in an environment, it's, it's, there's one, you can call it either this, I was raised in this environment, or I was brainwashed in this environment. Meaning, you have no perspective. That's all you've ever known. And so I remember my first trip when I, I went to Europe. And I traveled through 17 countries in Europe for several months. When I got to, where did I land? I landed in Oslo, Norway. And I'm having my first beer with some people. 
and they're speaking, they're, they're like, they're like mouthing off about America. Now, I didn't realize America's part of punchlines. I was like this all-American guy, very proud. I was like Trump, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was so the opposite of Trump. I was like a long-haired hippie freak, you know. Like my bloodstream could have turned on all of Western Europe. And the, I was hardly Trump, but I was a proud American, you know, touring around with the Grateful Dead, one of the only 100% American cultural phenomena. And they're talking smack about America. I was indignant. And I start arguing. I'm defending my country. Except I lost every argument. I'm Jewish, so I know how to argue, and I realize I lost. So, like, we're actually, like, Americans are, like, the, the punchline of European jokes and stuff. And I'm sure now, oh, my gosh, they're having a field day with Trump as president. Like, how'd that happen? Like, suddenly, like, they really, they're probably having the best year ever in Europe with Trump being president, just as far as, like, conversations over beer. After about a week of that, after a day or two of me defending America, then I got quiet for a day or two. I got quiet and just said, maybe I should listen and hear what's being said here, because so far I've lost every argument. And maybe I'll just listen now. And then by the end of the week, I had already adopted their position. <laughs> they were right. It was just, it's just stupid stuff. Like, it was like the stupid stuff about our country called America. And, you know, as I call it here in Israel, I call it the United States of Asaf. And now I realize years later that a Jew could never, ever, and please, if you're anti-Semitic, don't use this against us, but a Jew could never be an American. You can be a Jew living in America, but it's just a host country. I'll give you an example, like, ask a Russian. Anyone here from, uh, anyone here uh, born in Russia? Anyone here born in uh, Eastern Europe? You were born in Eastern Europe? Excellent. And you were raised Jewish? Is your mother Jewish? Your mother's Jewish. You knew, you knew you were Jewish? Yeah, you can flip it. You knew you were Jewish, yeah? So you can flip it if you want. So you knew, you mind if we make it interesting? Because otherwise the video is very boring. So you knew you were Jewish. And tell me, did you ever think for a second, what, what city were you born in? Moldova. Moldova, what country is that? It's Moldova. <laughs> that's one of the jokes they had about America. <laughs> we don't even know what the globe looks like. Or were you being hosted by Moldova? You felt hosted, right? Anyone else here born to another country besides uh, the U.S.? You were born, oh, okay. were, you born in, were you born in Mexico? Oh, we got Mexicans right here. I'll come to you guys. <laughs> You're our producer. So you're, you're from, you were born and raised in Mexico? Yeah. Did you ever think for a second that you were actually home in your Mexican homeland? Or did you feel that Mexico was hosting the Jewish community? Yeah, for sure. Mexican hosted? Hosted. Hosted. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. And, uh, and obviously anyone from Iraq, Iran, Morocco. Where are you from? Your parents are from Iran. Did your parents feel that Iran was their homeland or they were being hosted by Iran? Uh, hosted. Big time hosted. And then unhosted. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
unhosted. And how many countries were we unhosted from? Whew. Most people, when they grew up in a country, in Europe, for example, when you grew up in France, Spain, Portugal, wherever you grew up, you knew that the chances of you bouncing your grandkids on your lap in that same country were nil. You will be expelled before you'll be a grandfather in, the, in your hometown. Before you'll be a grandfather in your hometown, you will have already been expelled to another country. Not necessarily that country, by the way, because all the expulsions were all over the place. They were every like 10, 15 years, sometimes eight years. But it could be you were in a country you did get to hang out for a couple hundred years. We were expelled, some countries were expelled multiple times, meaning we were expelled from, I forget what country, what was the country we were most expelled from? I think it was either France, Spain were expelled multiple times? No. I think France were expelled four whole times. Four whole times. Meaning we came back there five times. And we're completely, they rid the country of us five times, four times. Now, um, why am I talking about expulsions? I'm starting to lose the plot here. Oh, raise your hand if you were born in the U.S. Anybody show, show the show the plan? Born in the U.S. Okay. I was born in East LA. Um, so everyone, raise. Okay, hold your hand up if you felt like you were home growing up. <laughs> Same exact people. Okay. Shares with all of us, tells all of us an amazing lesson. An amazing lesson is that America has been the most dangerous place for world Jewry ever. Why? I'm, I'm, that was just a pregnant pause, but the why was the why was perfectly placed. America has been the most dangerous place for world Jewry in any exiled place we've ever been. I'll tell you a couple stats. Uh, one stat that's really crazy is that that more Jews have disappeared in America from identifying as Jews. I'm just talking about when the census comes around. More Jews have disappeared as identified as Jews when they're asked if they're Jewish on a sentence. You mean... However they do the census of Jews in America, they have some methodologies. Yeah, what's that? I thought the census does ask for religious information. Why not? Well, when's the last time anyone here had their census? For sure they did. 2010, it wasn't on there. You, you did it? I conducted it, yeah. Anyway, whatever the world, ju- whatever the world jury uh, numbers are, which are kept by whomever keeps them, so they, the number of Jews that identify themselves as Jews in America, um, there were missing six million. It hit six million about a year and a half ago. You know why I'm using that number, obviously. But, they, but meaning the amount of Jews that have disappeared in wealth and prosperity, in safety, in, in uh, a non-war-torn territory without any serious... Any serious uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, pogrom or other kind of movement with protection of uh, rights and uh, right to religion and everything. With everything, with mikvahs available wherever you, know, wherever you go you know, to keep Judaism going and the ability to build a synagogue as big as the sky 
the, the that we've lost as many Jews from the census as we have lost in the Holocaust. And the rabbis actually um, share the following: there's an there's a superfluous word in the discussion in the dealings of Esav and Yaakov, where Esav's called. Um, it, the Torah, it should say, save me from the hand of Esau, but it says, save me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau. He's called uh, Achi. So there's Esau, and then there's Achi Esau. And Achi means my brother, and Esau is just, you know, Jacob's nemesis, who was always out to kill him. But Esau has a brotherly side to him that is more insidious than his hand. Meaning more insidious than is the war of Esau against the Jews when he's being our brother than when he's being our enemy. When he's being our enemy, think about it. Think about it. In Moldova, did you ever suffer anti-Semitism over there? Did you ever get picked on for being a Jew? Oh, you were five. Did your parents ever suffer? Yeah. yeah. Which was what? A tremendous reminder that they're Jewish. They're constantly reminded, and and they just uh, meaning when when the when the when the uh, former Soviet Union fell, and Jews finally could go in there and go help the Jews, all the Jewish federations and the and the Aliyah and uh, the the Jewish uh, what's it called the agency, and when they went in there to help, how do you find the Jews? They've been dealing with, you know, however many years, decades of assimilation, decades of atheism. How do you find the Jews? It was very easy. The word dirty Jew. Dirty Jew is what kept the Jews. Because in Europe, Asav is Asav in his, all his force. And it constantly reminds Jews who they are. But when Asav turns brotherly, as he has in, in, uh, in North America, when Asav turns brotherly, that's when things get bad. That's when the Jews have suffered their worst losses. As far as uh, as far as just the, what we call, I know I'm, I hate to borrow the word from the uh, anti-abortionists, but that's what we call the silent scream. The silent scream. But when I hear the stats of Jews disappearing in America, in America, I all I can picture is just the screams of people in gas chambers that no one could hear. No one heard those screams. Or maybe someone did outside, but. Millions of Jews were being killed in gas chambers. And, you know, a mile away, you didn't hear that. Probably a block away, you didn't hear it. And so, too, the silent scream there. You know, there was a... I met a woman here in Israel, observant woman, who uh, told this crazy story that she was engaged to a Gentile in the U.S. And she... What happened was someone in their family was observant and said, like, I don't care if you marry a Gentile. Go ahead and marry a Gentile. You have free will. But at least go to Israel. Spend three weeks studying Judaism. So at least you're making a choice. We believe in free will. Make a real choice. This isn't a real choice. You don't know anything about Judaism. How can you possibly choose to marry this Gentile, letting go of 3,329 years of Jewish history? Uninformed. You want to do that? Do it. But do it in four. Make a real choice. 
And so he's, he bought her a ticket. She took him up on it, and she okay. She studied for three weeks. Now, as predicted by him, he, she ended the free three weeks with the commitment to stay here, study, and become observant, break off her engagement to her, to her uh, Gentile fiancé. And she flies back to the U.S. at the end of three weeks. She didn't just extend. She was a good person. You know, you don't break up an engagement by email or phone call. She went to talk to him. So she goes to the man in person and says to him, you know, I'm sorry, but I've discovered that I can't, be, who my people are, what we represent, what it's all about, and I cannot betray my people and marry you. So I'm sorry, it's over. And he says the following words, Hitler should have finished the job. And she said, I mean, she told me this, she was in my class, she was in here. She, she says, uh, she said like her, her blood froze, like her skin crawled. And she, she just like ran off crying and like couldn't believe it. And then, you know, spent a little time with her family, flew back to Israel to study Torah. And when, but when she got to Rebison Weinberg, who ran a program, uh, called Iyat in, um, you know, Jerusalem, uh, whatever part of Jerusalem, northern Jerusalem, she told her what happened, and you know what she said? She says, in Europe, they killed our bodies. Now they marry us. There is still a lot of overt anti-Semitism. I lived in Idaho. <laughs> and Idaho has anti-Semitism. No Jews or blacks? Into this particular university, it was a very evangelical, Christian, um, wow. orthodox, and no blacks. And now I found out because I'm an accountant, I was doing someone's tax return one of the officers. Mm. And I said, oh, you're there. We just started talking because I was interviewing, asking questions for his tax return. He didn't know I was doing Oh, my God. So you started talking. I was... Yeah. Right. It's no like riffraff in that university. No riffraff, but no you don't know how to deal with it when it's so, when it's, you know, when someone just in your face doesn't know right, that it's you weird, are right? Jewish. And uh, you did you tell him in the end or you, you left it? It was a professional remember. situation. I don't remember. I remember going home and crying and really upset. Really? I like it when they're anti-Semitic, personally. I wanted you know why I like it? Look how, look how, look how, how overt I am. Right. Let's all just be over. Like, if you're Jew, you'd be the greatest Jew ever. You know, there's a great Baal Shem Tov story. Amazing story, the Baal Shem Tov, that he asked God, now, again, I don't know if this story's true, because it's hard to believe it's true, but he asked God to, he asked God to see who would he be next to in the next world. Who would the Baal Shem Tov be next to in the next world? So, so they show him who he's next to. Or, no, he tells him where he is, so, the, so Baal Shem Tov goes to meet, who is this guy? The guy opens a door. The guy can't even fit out of his door. He's so obese. He's been in this house for, for like years because he can't get out of his house. And he sits him down to eat. gives the Baal Shem Tov a plate of food. He takes a plate of food. And, and he's eating this like massive amount of food. And he says to me, the whole time Baal Shem Tov is incredulous how he got an overeater for a partner in the next world. You know? He's like, what is going on here? You know, the whole, throughout the meal. 
And um, and the guy says, he asks him, you know, tell me why are you eating so much? <laughs> tell me, that's why this story is just like, can't possibly be true. He's like, tell me, sir, why are you eating so much? And he says to him the following, he says, when my father was as thin as a twig. And when the goyim took him and burned him alive, he was gone in a second. When they come for me, it's going to burn for a really long time. Now, of course, that is the craziest story that's anyone weird. ever told. That's the weirdest it's story. It's just the weirdest story. Obviously. <laughs> when I heard that story, I was like, I didn't want to say anything because I was like a young whippersnapper. But I, what I wanted to say when I heard that, I was like, understood what? Like, <laughs> what did he understand? <laughs> what did he understand? That God has a crazy sense of humor? You know, like, what did he understand? So, <laughs> so, what he, but the point is, is that, the point is, is what, but I, by the way, it took me 25 years to understand that story. I only this year finally understood the story. What the story's saying is just, I mean, you forget the whole horrific story. The story's awful. No, not one part of that story is nice except for the word Balshemto. Okay? The rest of the story is horrific. You know, and I think I mentioned God a couple times, that's also nice. And the story's a lame story. But my me- lesson from the story that I got now, that I finally got, is you be the best damn Jew you could ever be. That's the lesson. It was the lesson the story was in terms of eating, but the point is is like if, if, you, if they're coming for you, it shouldn't have been a waste. You know, the, we had a, during the uh, Gulf War, not the Gulf War, we were having major intifada times. We had like a left-wing government in position here in Israel. And it was uh, their whole strategy with the nations, because, you know, they have to kiss up a lot to get the money. So their whole strategy with the nations was when there's a terrorist attack, the nations that feed us heroin, I mean gas, I mean, uh, did I say ga- gas? Sorry, they give us money. Sorry, the, they need the they need the heroin. The nations who are hooked on the heroin that comes from the eastern countries. I mean, oil. We need them for money, so it becomes this whole crazy triangle that we have to deal with. And so, we of course, our leaders need the money. Now, what are they more interested in, Jewish lives or the money? Jewish lives and the money. Jewish lives and the money. And uh, excuse my French, kick butt. The same exact security that I enjoyed growing up in California, which to me, having grown up in L.A., I feel is my inalienable right as a citizen of any country to be completely and totally protected and not just where I'm standing, but in every direction. Every direction. As long as it's within Israel's borders, I should be able to walk there freely. No matter where I go, I am a taxpaying citizen of a country with an army, and my security is guaranteed. That's, sorry, I'm, I'm from the U.S. That's the way I grew up. And I demand that standard. Now, <laughs> you're all looking at me like, what the, where is he going with this? You know, <laughs> but you, what I'm trying to do is wake you all up. You can't walk 100 feet that way. 200 feet that way is risky. And 100 feet that way is risky. You're, you're, in, a, you're, in, a giant, you're in a giant mousetrap. The only safe place you can walk is Ben Yehuda Street, and that ain't safe either. For other reasons. <laughs> no, you can't. No, not, not where I grew up. When I grew up in New York City, we had National Guard outside our school for months when there was nothing there to attack. Because it was a Jewish school? No, because 
um, there had been an attack and there was nothing left, but they were National Guard. You have people getting run over or dying. I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in post 9/11 New York City. Even pre 9/11, your people who are not aware are deluding. And the, the random just because someone was mentally off and shot his mother. No, but this things like on, that happen. It's going on all over America. Right but it's also going on all over Europe. And it's going on all over South America. And it's going on all over Africa. Guns are guns are in the hands of the wrong people. Are always dangerous. Then, know how many then the guns are in the right hands. And then you really, then you rethink it all. It's very so, interesting, the whole gun thing, because Israel, yeah. the guns are in the right hands. Exactly. Meaning they're in peace-loving, you know, caring, careful people. And we have an extremely low rate of random killing. Extremely low rate, like insanely low rate. In fact, we had, Israel had almost had no murders in its first 30 years. 30 years. I can have almost no murders. I think if you look at the stats, Israel might be safer than America. <laughs> it, 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 it might be. Flowers. might be. What's your name, by the way? Ariel. What? Ariel. Ariel. How are you doing? I'm Rabbi Glazer. By the way, Ariel, I know today I was like super intense and crazy, <laughs> but I'm different every single day. So, I've seen you oh, good. You know this is. Yes. I, I, my I'm style. Not sure that, most of, that all of your facts today were accurate? They may not be. <laughs> They may not be, I, and I'm totally open to, to better facts. If you've got them, give them to me, please. I'm at my name at Gmail, Yom Tov Glazer Gmail. If you, if you don't mind, especially the census one. Okay. If you don't mind looking that up. Sure. Yeah. Okay? Just my name at Gmail. Okay? And you're always welcome, and I promise to be in a totally different mood tomorrow. <laughs> it's statistically probable that I'll be able to You know what? You want to crazy thing? I never know what mood I'm in. Literally, when I walk in the door, sometimes I think like, "Okay, I'm on fire. This is gonna be the best class ever." And then it's like, like, not much of a class. And then I, today I came in kind of more down, and now I'm like manic. So like, whatever. My different types of personalities have different uh, roller coaster rides. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of, a lot of a big roller coaster. Um, I, I believe it or not, I want to wrap up this whole class. So, um, it's after 3 already? Yeah. 3.15, okay. The, the Wednesday class goes a little longer, but I'm, I'm going to actually button the whole thing up. I don't know whether to do it backwards or forwards. Backwards. Backwards. Okay, so then I just need help. How do we get on to security? I'll just button that up. How do we get on to security? In America, you feel safe. I feel safe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like home. If you were born right. Right. Hosts. 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 Yes. Is. You're cold? Okay. Um, we're almost done. A host is that America's very dangerous because people don't realize they're being hosted. Whereas all the other countries, you never forgot who you were. In America, it's very easy to forget who you are. That was the hosting part. Um, regarding surrender to the seminars, the life seminar, we're all inside this crazy big seminar called Our Lives, and we, and we release resistance to it. We, we just go into releasing to let life take us where it takes us and let God run His way. Today's prophecy is through your life circumstances. And when you surrender to that, 
Now, by the way, surrendering to it doesn't mean necessarily going with it. We always have to speak to rabbis and say, like, this is where it's taking me. Should I be going there? Because I got free will. I don't have to go there. I got, I got choice. And so you always speak to a rabbi. Sometimes God's showing you something to check if you're going to, if you're going, if you're willing to go the wrong way and take that fork. And your job is to not go that way. Sometimes you get that fork and you're specifically supposed to go that way. And it's hard to know the difference. And that's why we have rabbis. We give them a lot of info. And obviously, we're, ta- we're not talking about someone who's just called rabbi. We're talking about someone with a great amount of intuition who can, like, as close as possible, wear your shoes in that situation. And the last thing to mention is, is commitment that Ezra mentioned, that I've been waiting to get to for the longest time, is that when you go to a seminar, they're going to push all your buttons. And so you're going to want to leave. And... You're never going to grow if you leave the seminar. It's there. The whole it was designed to push those buttons. You think the leader's just messing with you? He is messing with you, but he's messing with you in a very tactical way. You get what I'm saying? If you're in, if you have a seminar leader who's pushing your buttons, your job's not to get upset with him. He's just doing his job. It's all very tactical. Why he's pushing those buttons? What's your entire breakthrough from that seminar going to pivot on? What? If you go do some seminar, what is your entire seminar pivoting on? What does it pivot on? Without it, you will not get the breakthrough. With it, you get the breakthrough. What's the answer? Ladies, what's the answer? What is your entire, if you go do a seminar, what's it all pivoting on? Yes, commitment. That you're not getting out. You're not getting out. And you're also not going to turn dumb in the middle of it and just shut your brain off until it ends. But you're going to stay in. That's what it's all about. I was recently, I ran a women's seminar recently. You got to see this. That was crazy, right? That, that some, some woman raises her hand at a part of a seminar where she should not have raised her hand right then. She raises her hand. Obviously, it's anonymous who that person is. And she raises her hand. She says, Rabbi, the part where you're supposed to feel it, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble feeling that. Give me some advice how to feel it. And so she's waiting for her advice. But what did I say instead? I said, why didn't you do your homework? She's looking at me like, how does he know? she's like trying to call my bluff. How does he know I didn't do my homework? So she just kind of sat there silently. And then I decided I'm going to use this as a lesson to the whole group because probably she's not the only one who didn't do her homework. So we're just going to make this a, a life lesson moment here for the next 10 minutes. But when, by the time I got to the end of it, I said, had you done, she had to do a process four times with four different people. I said, had you done it the first time, you wouldn't have really known what you were doing. The second time, you might have started figuring out what you're doing. By the third time, you'd know what you're doing. By the fourth time, boom, you would have been. It would have broken your heart wide open. You would have been sobbing like a, like a, like a baby. I know you didn't do your homework. And she was, of course, busted. She had not done and, and I said to her that the whole seminar is pivoting off that first commitment you made to be fully participating. That you're going to participate fully. And don't come to me with questions now of why I'm not feeling something when you didn't follow, sorry, when you didn't keep your word. You understand? Now, you ready for this? Apply that to your, your seminar called life. <laughs> Commitment. Everything pivots on it. How many of you, this is 
gonna be a little rough. I hate to do this. You ready? How many of you have secretly and carefully <laughs> installed all kinds of little exit signs in your life? <laughs> little exit signs on the yeshiva you committed to learning. Little exit signs on your relationships. Little exit signs on your work. Little exit signs on your workouts. Little exit signs on the, your diets. Little exit signs. We got little exit signs everywhere, and therefore we don't get the growth. You gotta get rid of your exits. And they're your. And remember, I called them secret. Why do you call them secret? Because you don't tell anybody about your little exits. You got your little exits, and they're your little pet secret exits. We all have exits. We all go this far in a relationship, and then we just stop right there. I'm, I'm out. And you're not necessarily out of the relationship, but that's, you're out as far as going deeper. Because it's starting to touch parts of me that are softer tissue, and I don't, I'm scared now. I don't want to get hurt again. And so I never get the growth out of the relationship because I'm too busy protecting myself from previous hurts. Exit signs are a disaster for growth. We have to go in and we got to go in fully. We're, this life is a, is a giant seminar. Seminars pivot off commitments. You, no real serious growth seminar comes with, with exits. It, they all come with commitment. And the commitment is where your growth comes. That's when you grow, is when you're stuck and you've got to grow. Now, I hate to bring this to a shameless plug, but I am running a seminar um, for men. Uh, we just finished a women's one, and I'm starting one for men this Sunday. And I have a free introduction with the best chillant in town tomorrow night at 8.30 p.m. You probably live in Hoodside somewhere, or you live here? Where do you live? Brooklyn. So I'm coming to Brooklyn. My next one in Brooklyn's in April. But you can come if you want to have some chillant and discover what I do. So, But I'll be there. I've traveled there a lot. Anyway... Um, Gentlemen, I've got flyers for you. I'll give you flyers, but it's going to be Sunday here in Nachlaot, in the center of town near Ben Yehuda King George. It starts Sunday at 7 p.m. It's going to be every single day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and the following Sunday, six days straight. It has to be straight so that you, because we have these exits we set up with once a week things. Once a week things, it's like you come in like totally like nothing happened the next week. You have to come in the next day going like, uh-oh. And by the third day, you're just like, okay, I give up. And you surrender. And so it's uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday. And 7 to 11-ish really never ends. It doesn't end until about, the men's seminar doesn't end until like 12, really, or quarter to 12, 12, 11.30. And, uh, and it's, uh, and, but tomorrow night's at Dushinsky. It's on Shmulanovi Street. 52 Shmuel Hanavi Dushinsky, and it's around the back is a hall. That's Thursday? Yeah, I rent a hall there for the intros just because it's more convenient for everyone who lives in Northeast Jerusalem, which is the Mir Yeshiva, all those guys over there. But um, it's going to be an excellent chillant, and there will be music uh, both during and afterwards. Shalom. That's a cut. Yeah. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.